Psalms chapter number 32. And I want to preach to you tonight on the topic, the confession of a king. Aren't you thankful that as you read through the book of Psalms, there's not... If we were to name the top five people in Scripture, aside from our Lord and Savior, surely King David would probably be one of them. We would probably talk about the Apostle Paul, I'm sure. We would probably talk about uh, Moses. We would probably talk about Abraham. Uh, and I think for sure that we would probably mention the name of King David. But as you read through the book of Psalms, you'll find that he only wrote about half of the book of Psalms, or God wrote all of it, amen, but he only pinned down half of the Psalms. But the topic of sin in the life of the believer is dealt with in a very predominant way in David's life. And I'm thankful as you read the Word of God that, uh, you know, people have said before, well, that, that, that book is written by men. No, it's not written by men, and there's a lot of ways you can tell. But let me tell you one of them, because it deals not only with the beauty of the human man, but with his blemishes too. If I was writing about me, I'm going to be honest now, I'd probably leave a few things out. But we don't find that to be the case in the Word of God. And I, I'm thankful. I mean, I'm thankful for the victories in the life of David. They encourage me. But I am equally thankful for the failures in his life because it tells me that God can use somebody that fails and that messes up from time to time, or really, if you're like me, every single day. And Psalms 32 is just such a, a, a psalm as that. It deals with sin in the life of the believer. And we find the confession that David is making. And he says a few things about sin that I want us to notice. But before we read uh, Psalms 32, I have one verse I want to read to you out of the book of Proverbs. You don't have to turn there. It's just one verse. Uh, but chapter number 28, verse 13 says this. It says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. Now, let's, let's pause for a moment. I'm not even preaching yet, but let me just say, if we believe John 3.16, we ought to believe Proverbs 28.13. I mean, if we believe, you know, me and Brandon was talking uh, before we got started here tonight, I looked at him and I said, you got anything to preach? I can't find a thing in that book. Just jokingly, you know. I had my sermon prepared for a while, but just joking with him. And he said, well, John 14. And John 14 is always there. Always good to preach. If we believe John 14, we ought to believe Proverbs 28, 13. If we believe Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose, then we ought to believe Proverbs 28, 13, when it tells us, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And so I want you to have that in your mind tonight as we preach out of Psalms chapter 32. And I just want to read five verses out of that psalm. The Bible says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless and honor your word tonight. God, fill me with the Holy Spirit for the preaching of your word. God, I pray that you just give us the unction that makes preaching easy, makes it applicable to hearts, and Lord, that you guide everything that I'd say. 
Help me not to say anything that I shouldn't and not to shy away from saying anything I should. And help me to glorify you in all things tonight. Lord, I pray that you would anoint the hearing just as you will the preaching. Help us to apply it to our lives through surrender to the Holy Ghost. God, I'd ask that if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As I read these five verses, there's a few words that I believe are important to take notice of. One of them is the word forgiven in verse number one, and then followed by the word covered. Verse number two uses the word imputeth and the word guile. Notice in verse number three, and this jumps out at me as I read this passage, David says, when I kept silence, silence, and he speaks of his bones waxing old. In verse number four, it says, thy hand was heavy upon me. And notice the word drought at the end of that verse. And then there's several in verse number five where he says, acknowledge, he says, iniquity, he says, transgressions, and he says, forgavest. Again, all these are important words, and every word in your King James Bible is important, but these are key words in understanding this passage. As you read this entire psalm, you'll find that God gives it some natural breaks by use of the word selah. Uh, This was a musical term, and what it meant to do was to pause for a moment and to meditate. You know, I like what Brother Kerry said earlier tonight. I believe we we don't pay enough attention to the words to the songs that we're singing oftentimes. I think it'll help us sometimes if, as we sing a song, if we stop and just think about the lyrics that we're singing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of us that'll sing, I surrender all, when we've not surrendered all. There's a lot of us that'll sing, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus when we're not trusting Him. Now, I understand you don't want to be the one person not singing, and I understand that, but I'm not saying you don't need to sing. I'm saying we need to meditate on these things. We need to consider them, think about them. They're important. And what's being done here in this psalm is God saying, take a minute, pause, and think about what's been said in this passage. It reveals to us that David was a human man. He was a human man. Uh, He sinned, he fell, he messed up, he did things that were wrong. I think we could all admit that as you read through the life of David, you'll find time and time again where he messed up, where he sinned and got out of the will of God. So the existence of this psalm tells me that he was a human man. It also tells me that he was a humble man. Because notice what it says, most of your Bibles will have this, and mine does, uh, just under the title, Psalms 32, mine says, A Psalm of David. So we believe this is David writing this, or God is using David to pin this down. I believe that is accurate. And so David is recording this about himself. Now, it's one thing to find everybody else's faults. We're all good at that, amen? I mean, every one of us, if you used to say, pick somebody in the room and tell me something wrong with them, we'd probably pick just about anybody and find something that we could pick apart, that we could nitpick and criticize them for. But it takes a real Christian to admit their own faults. Uh, you know, we don't like to do that. And, and, you know, the Bible never says, by the way, to confess our sins one to another. Never says that. Never one time. You say, preacher, why do you say it? Because the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaches that we're to confess our sins to another human being. But you know what the book of James says? The book of James says to confess your faults one to another. You say, well, what's the difference? The difference is this. It ain't none of your business what I've done, but it is your business what I'm prone to do. 
It ain't none of your business what I've done. And what you've done is none of, none of my business, you understand. I mean, we all have a responsibility to live godly. And when we join a church, we take on that responsibility that we owe uh, to that church to uphold the standards and the convictions that they preach. I'm not saying we don't have, but I'm saying it's not uh, up to me to confess my sins to you or up to you to confess your sins to me. But it'll help us if we'll confess our faults. If we'll tell people, you know, I'll be honest, I, I struggle with this. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? Can you keep me accountable? Can you ask me? Uh, One of the things that I believe is important, not because we want to make people feel low or feel down in the dumps, but if somebody tells you they're struggling with something, you ought to make a note of it and ask them about it later. Not in a critical way, not not in a nosy way, amen, but just go to them and say, hey, I've been praying for you about this matter. How are you doing with it? That's one of the things I've tried to make a practice to do with people when they tell me I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. And when I talk to them, if they don't bring it up, I try to bring it up and say, you know, I want you to know I love you and I'm praying for you about this because I know it's a battle for you. David was a humble man. He was willing to confess that he had done wrong. But I see something else in this passage. I see that not only was David human and was he humble, but I see he was holy. Now you say, preacher, give me the definition of holiness. Well, we could talk about holiness in a lot of different ways in Scripture. As part of the essence of God, we would say that holiness is the complete absence of sin and the complete inclination to do right at all times. And we have a holy God. I'm glad we have a forgiving God, but let's not let that outshine that He's a holy God either. Uh, you see, uh, you say, preacher, why? what do you mean? What's the importance of that? Forgiveness is what people need to hear about when they're lost, amen? And we need to hear about forgiveness after we're saved. But I'm saying the lost man, uh, you know, he needs to understand God will forgive him. But you understand that after we get saved, we also need to know that God's holy and He expects us to live holy. Uh, most of us are not concerned. Is it all right if I just preach for a few minutes about this? Most of us are not concerned with holiness in this day we live in. We care what everyone else thinks about it, what the world thinks about it, what our friends, what our family thinks about it, but we couldn't, uh, we couldn't give any less of a care what God thinks about a matter. I, I mean, uh, let's be honest now. Whenever we're faced with the decisions, most of us, what immediately runs through our mind is, well, what will people think? Why is it not that what runs through our mind is, what will God think about that matter? Hey, what will God think if I go to this place, if I dress this way, if I partake in this? How's God feel about this if I allow this into my home or into my life, if I allow this? I mean, I, I've got, and I'm going to preach it myself. I did that Sunday night and everybody seemed to like it, so I'm going to preach it myself again for a minute. I, I, I'm going to be raising a little boy. Right now, I ain't doing much. Mama's raising him right now. I mean, I just, you know, she says, here, i got to go do this, hold him. And I, and I hold him like that, you know, <laughs> try to keep something from getting on me. But, I, you know, we're going to be raising that baby boy, and I need to be asking myself. Now, I'm talking about me now. If this hits you, that's fine, but I'm talking about me. I need to be asking myself, when that little boy comes to me and says, Daddy, can I? I need to be asking myself, what will God think about that? What will God think about it if I let my boy dress this way or run around this place or, or do this or watch this or listen to this or whatever it is? I mean, as a daddy, I need to be thinking about, what does God think about that? And I know what his first inclination is going to be to say, because all kids' inclination is to say this, but my friends, well, your friends are not more important than God. And some people say, well, I don't know how they'll accept that. Well, how'd you accept it? (laughs) It was good for you, just like it was good for me. And we're not here to please them. We're here to raise them. Amen? We're not here to keep them happy all the time. We're we're here to show them how to be holy. That's what we're here for. 
And so David was a holy man. Holiness as it pertains to God and his essence deals with his uh, absolute absence of sin and of his abiding of sin and his inclination to do right. But I would say that in the uh, life of the believer, it does not mean that there is always a total absence of sin. But what it means is that when sin is present in our lives, it's something we deal with. We don't allow it to dominate us or to go, and let me use this Bible word because we've seen it several times in the verses we've read, to cover it, to cover it. I want to say a quick word tonight about the problem of concealed sin. Could I be honest with you, and I believe I'm accurate in saying this, that the majority of sin in the life of believers is concealed sin. Sin that nobody knows about. Now, sometimes it's because it's hidden sin, but sometimes it's because it's heart sin. Sometimes it's because it's something we've gone to great lengths to keep from people. But then there's other times when it's because it's something nobody can see because it's deep down inside. David, as he's speaking about this, it's interesting that in all of these verses, these five verses, and actually if you go through the entire passage, David never says a thing about what other people think about his sin. I believe there's two reasons. I believe because, for one, it wasn't David's concern what other people thought about it. He was concerned with what God thought about it. But I think, too, it's because probably nobody else knew about it. I mean, he just about got away. And when I say just about got away, you understand God wasn't going to let him get away with his sin with Bathsheba. But, I mean, David come nearer to getting away with it than probably anybody else could have. He tied up all of his loose ends. He covered everything uh, that he knew to cover. And so far as we know, nobody knew about it except for Joab. Joab knew about it. He had taken Joab into his confidence. But other than Joab, Nathan wouldn't have known about it except God revealed it to him. David just about got away with it. And sometimes it's because we have concealed our sin, things we wouldn't want anybody to know about. But sometimes it's, it's because they're heart sins that no one can see. I believe our churches, by and large, and, and when I say a good church, I mean a church that loves the Lord and is trying to do right. Hopefully they're not eaten up with, with outward sins of the flesh. I think we probably all have outward sins of the flesh that we don't like to admit to. But I think that our churches, even good churches, are eaten up with sins of the heart. Covetousness, pride. Listen, pride's a wicked thing. Pride is a wicked, wicked thing. Do you know that pride is probably the most abominable sin in the heart and eyes of God? Do you know that pride is the source of every other sin? Because you know what we're doing by sinning? We're saying, Lord, I know better than you do. That's what we're saying. Lord, you've said this is wrong for me or for my family or, 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 or for my personal life, my devotional life. Lord, you've said this, but I just don't think you're right about it. I think I can do this other thing and it'll be all right. That's pride. Uh, that's pride driving us to do this. That's, that's pride that is motivating and that is validating our sin. Pride's at the heart of it. Do you know that the Bible speaks of uh, man turning his countenance away from God because of pride? You know why every sinner dies and goes to hell? At the very end of the day, it's because of this issue of pride. You see, we like to say, well, people die and go to hell uh, because of their sins. And I know what you mean when you say that, and I agree with you to a, to a point. But do you know that sin is no reason for a person to die and go to hell? Because Christ died for sin on Calvary. The reason people die and go to hell, and John chapter 3 addresses this, uh, says that they perish because they believe not on me. That's why they're under condemnation. They, they've not believed on me. Well, why won't they believe on him? Because they don't want to admit they need a Savior. <laughs> this issue of pride is a big thing, and we're all guilty of it. Most of us, and by the way, pride, pride is the doormat that leads into the doorway of idolatry. Because when we start to get proud over something, that's, we're putting it above the Lord. 
And I don't care what it is. I mean, it's hard, you know. Again, we, we got that, that baby, and every parent is going to feel the same way as I do about mine. Uh, you know, you've heard the old saying, every crow thinks his crow's the blackest. Amen. And it's tough sometimes. And it's easy to put him above the Lord, and I have to allow the Lord to keep me in check about that. Sometimes it's not that. It can be a spouse. It can be kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews. Uh, it could be the neighbor kid. It could be, it could be anybody. But someone we allow to become a, an idol in our life, and we do that because of pride we allow it into our life. So David's dealing with concealed sins in this passage, and he deals with the problems that address them. And I, and I don't know how this is going to go tonight, but you pray for me. I'm going to try to do my best uh, to preach the Word of God to you. I want to notice three things that he deals with. The first thing he deals with is that sin causes physical problems. Now, let me preface what I'm about to say now. I am not implying that every time a person gets a sniffle, it's because it's the judgment of God in their life. I'm not implying that every time a person uh, breaks a bone or, or, or gets sick or something happens, that it's because of some secret sin in their life. And by the way, David's not implying that either. Notice what it says in our text. Look at verse number 3. Uh, or verse, Yes, verse number 3. David says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Do you know that sin bringeth forth death? Always. Always. Every single human being in this world, aside that we know of from Elijah and Enoch, there's only one way that they're going to exit this world unless the Lord returns first. And that's through the doorway of death. That's because of Adam's sin. The Bible says, For it is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, in that all have sinned. We all are going to face death. That's a result of Adam's sin. But do you know uh, that sin is the root source and cause even of disease and sickness in this world in a corporate sense? Not in an individual sense, but in a corporate sense. And you say, Preacher, do you believe that some people can get sick because of their sin? Well, yeah, I know that there's some people that do, but not everybody. Job wasn't afflicted. He didn't get those bulls because of his sin. Not everybody that's sick, it's a result of sin. But there are occasions when it can be the judgment of God. But do you know that's not even what David's talking about here? He's talking about the toil that sin brings physically in the life of the believer when they conceal it and refuse to address it and deal with it with God. What does he say? My bones waxed old. Old. You know what David's saying? If I could put it in modern terms... Sin will make an old man out of you before you have to be. There is a physical stress that comes along with living out of the will of God. There's a lot of people who won't preach this to you tonight, but I believe it's biblical to say there is a physical stress that comes with being out of the will of God. There is an anxiety that comes from it. There is a torment that comes from it. And David says, when I hid my sin, when I was out of the will of God, when I wasn't doing what God wanted, I literally was growing older by the day than I had to be. It causes all kinds of anxiety in our lives. And many of you can remember a time when you've been out of the will of God. And, and I don't necessarily mean you went out drinking and so your, you, you know, your liver uh, rotted or, or you took up smoking and so your lungs rotted. That's not even what I'm talking about. We could preach about that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the stress-induced wear upon the believer because he has sin in his life. Staying up at night because you can't sleep because you know you're wrong with God. Uh, being stressed out and aggravated. You ever had one of them days where apparently you was wearing your last nerve on your sleeve and you come out of the house and the first person saw you found it 
and jumped right on top of it. And then every person they met, it's like they walked up to him and said, Come look here! That's his last nerve if you want to get on it. I've had days like that. You've had days like that. But can I say, too, that many times days like that are days when I've got sin in my life and I'm out of the will of God and I'm miserable. I'm not saying you never have a stressful day. When you're in the will of God, you will. But there's many times when our frustration, our bitterness, our anger... The source cause of it is because we're out of the will of God. There's physical problems. But notice what he says. He says there's spiritual problems. Look at verse number 4. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. The first thing he says is my bones were waxing old. But now he says thy hand was heavy upon me. David said I could feel that I was wrong with God. That's what's implied by this phrase, is it not thy hand was heavy Upon me, I, I think we know that that's how we sense the weight of something is physically. Now, we might be able to look at something and guesstimate, oh, that weighs a lot or that weighs very little. But the only way we can sense the weight of something is physically. And do you know that a lot of times that, that sorrow that we have in our lives, you ever just felt like something was wrong with you and God? I'm, me and a couple others, Brother Ralph, are the only ones. <laughs> felt like something was wrong with you and God. And you know what it did? It brought sorrow and misery into your life. Now, this is an experiential sermon tonight. If you've never experienced this, you don't know what I'm talking about. But, but I would say there's probably not hardly a believer, not nary one that's not experienced this at some point, if they've lived any amount of time, when they've had sin in their life and they loathed to pray. They didn't want to open this book because they knew what this book would tell them. They didn't want to see God's people because they knew what it would be like. I tell you, I, I have seen in, in my time of pastoring, there's a lot of things that concern people that don't concern me. But there's other things that, that other people don't seem to mind that when I see them, it alarms me because I've had experience with people and I've seen what's happened when they get sin in their life. And let me tell you two things that I always dread when I see in the life of somebody. One is when they grow short and distant. I've seen it in people's lives. Sometimes people are just having a bad day. That happens. You have them like I have them. When you see people that their joy has been robbed from them, you know there's something wrong. You say, well, maybe, maybe somebody took that joy. No, Christ said that your joy shall no man take. We forfeit that joy. And many times you'll see somebody that at one time they were bubbly and excited in the Lord, and you could tell just God was all over them. But now when you talk to them, there is a darkness and a cloud that seems to hover over them all the time. A second thing that I always hate to see is when people begin to distance themselves from the godly influences in their life. see this in young people a lot. And young people do it because they, they're not as big a hypocrites as we are. <laughs> we're we're kind of, we grow to be adults and we learn how to be good hypocrites, how to be around people that are right with God and talk the talk and walk the walk. But young people don't know how to do that yet. And so their only response is to push away from the godly influences that they have in their life. And could I say, I don't really go in for much of this philosophy, but I do believe that Aristotle had it right when he said, birds of a feather, they do flock together. And you know that that's even a biblical principle because the first psalm says to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. When we start getting around people that validate our sin instead of condemning our sin, you can tell something's wrong in our life. And when you get around people that are going to look at you and say, hey, it's okay you live that way, you better watch out. They may say they're a friend, but they're worst, your worst enemy. 
run from them like you would a rattlesnake. You get people in your life that will come up alongside you and say, you know, I know that you've been taught that this isn't so, but what do those people know anyway? You better run from those people. It causes spiritual problems, but I believe it also causes emotional problems. Look what he says in verse number 4. He says, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. Now, I believe that there is both a, a literal application of this and a, a symbolic application of this language. The literal is this, and you see this all through the Word of God, that in times of great sorrow, the writers would speak about how that their mouths would get dry. And they would talk about their tongue cleaving to the roof of their mouth and seeking moisture. And so I believe that's what David is talking about. But I believe that the reason they use this language is because there's something picturesque in it. What they're saying is, I just felt all dried up. just felt like there was nothing left. Can I say that sin will make you feel like a wrung out dish rag when you live with it? Now remember, the key to all this is David says, when I kept silence... We don't have to live this way, but when we keep silent, sin has this this vampiric effect upon our lives. He says there was emotionally, I just felt drained, felt worn out. You know, I I think we all, and I preached on it just the other day, in fact, it might have been last Wednesday, about weariness. We all get weary. If if you're not getting weary, it's probably because you're not doing anything. Amen. We all get weary. I don't care who you are, but could I say that a lot of times the reason that we're ragged is because there's something wrong. A lot of times, and you see some people that, you know, it's one thing to want a little rest every now and then, but you see some people that want a perpetual rest. I've seen some people, and one of the things I've always tried to stress to people, if you feel like something is too much on you, if you're serving, doing something uh, in the church, and you feel like it's too much on you, before you ever get burnt out, before you ever get bitter, before you ever hate coming to church, come to me. And say, Pastor, it's just a little bit more than what I can handle. Can we get somebody to help out? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But then I've seen other people that they say, well, I need a rest. And it's a perpetual rest. I mean, they they step out of doing something, step out of service. They just never come back. Why would they do that? There's something wrong. That's why. They're all dried up. They're not wanting rest. They're wanting to walk away from it because there's nothing left. They've allowed something in their heart and life that has robbed them of the joy and energy that they once had in serving the Lord. You know, the Bible says, they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with eagles' wings. The Bible says that uh, they shall run and not be weary. You know, a lot of times we like to blame it on our circumstances, but really it's our sin that's causing that in our lives. So it deals with the problem of concealing sin. But look at verse number 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. We see the pattern for confronting sin. So we, you say, preacher, i got sin in my life. What do I do? Well, David deals with three things. Notice number one, he confesses or confronts the existence of his sin. He says, I acknowledged He does not say, my sin began to exist. He says, I acknowledge the existence of that sin. I acknowledge my sin, my iniquities, my transgressions. First thing that we have to do is start getting honest with ourselves and with God and admitting there is something wrong in our lives. I mean, listen, even even the, the, you know, the AA or A or or AA, triple A, I got triple A, I don't think that's the same thing. Even the AA will tell you one of the first steps is honesty. Honesty. We have to admit there's something wrong. 
We have to admit there's something in our lives that stands at ought with God. And a lot of people never get sin dealt with because they're too prideful to admit they've sinned. They've done something. Something's wrong. We're too prideful to admit we have these idols or this iniquity or whatever it is in our life, you see, because we know when we acknowledge it, we have to address it. We don't want to address it. We don't want to give it up. So instead, we, we live a lie, both between us and others and between us and God. We say, Lord, there's nothing there. He talks about confessing or confronting the extent of your sin. He uses the word transgression. That word transgression is interesting. You'll find several words for sin in the Word of God, and they all add a different hue, a different color to the picture of sin that God paints. And the idea behind transgression is the idea of being outside the bounds. We think of when a sports team is playing, and they are running and they're going and they step outside, whatever it may be. If it's football, they step outside of that line and the referee will uh, take and throw a flag down to show that they've done something wrong. And so what David says is he says, I have stepped outside of what God deems allowable. We have to admit, and by the way, you know, something that's funny about those boundaries, even the people on the TV can see where they're at. Everybody knows where them boundaries are. And I understand God may be bringing you along and teaching. There may be things that God's dealt with you about today. He, he wouldn't have dealt with you about five years ago. And I, and I hope there is. That means you're growing. That's a wonderful thing. But most of the time, we already know where the boundaries are. Most of the time, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. I, I preached uh, just a couple weeks ago on redefining the battle. I talked for a little while about playing the fool. A lot of times, uh, parents allow their kids to play them for a fool. And I was blessed with parents who didn't allow me to do that. They'd look at me and they'd say, why did you do this? And you'd say, I don't know. I'd get a whipping for saying I don't know. You know why? Because that was a lie. I did know. I did know what I... Or they'd say, well, I didn't know that was wrong. Uh, You know, half the time you'd have to be wrong in the head to not know it was wrong. And I had parents that were very good to me. They didn't allow me to play the fool. They didn't, our our house was not a courtroom. Our house was not, listen, this will help us. Our house was not a courtroom. A burden of proof was not necessary. Evidence was not necessary. If the judge passed his judgment, that was sufficient. And you know, I believe that's biblical. We don't have to have a burden of proof. You say, preacher, you say that because yours is a little one. By God's grace, if God will help me, I want to parent him that way. I want to deal with him that way. Daddy didn't have to prove we'd done something wrong. If he knew, we knew. That's all it took. That's all it took. Do you know why? Because our discipline was more important than our dissatisfaction. It was important in our house. Thank the Lord for it. It helped me. I'm who I am today because of it. God helped me in that way. And do you know that it's the same way with God? (laughs) God sets these boundaries. We know what these boundaries are. And sometimes we want to play the fool with God and we want to say, Lord, you know, I just didn't realize it was all that bad. No, we knew. We knew or God wouldn't be judging us for it. If God's judging us for it, it's because we knew. God's not going to judge us over something that we have no knowledge of. He's judging us over something that we know. And we knew it was wrong. And we might as well just go ahead and, and confess to the extent of it. Lord, I knew it was wrong. I knew I had done wrong. I knew I had messed up. But I sinned and I did it anyway. That'll help us a lot more. And then he deals with the word iniquity. This is another one of those colors in this portrait of sin that is used. And the word iniquity has the idea of being crooked or bent, to be broken. 
And so he's dealing not only with confessing the existence of your sin and the extent of your sin, but listen now, dealing with the erring of your sin. E-R-R-I-N-G. Erring. The fact, David says, the reason I sinned is because I'm prone to sin. That's why I say he was a humble man. He's saying, Lord, I'm prone to do this. Now, he's not making excuses. He's not saying, Lord, this is just how you made me, so I've messed up. But what David is saying is, Lord, I've sinned, I've done wrong, and if you don't help me, I'm going to continue to do it because I know I'm prone to do it. God, I'm sick of my sin, but I need your strength and help to conquer it in my life. Speaks of his iniquity. You know, we might as well go ahead and come to terms with the fact that until the Lord takes us out of here, we're always going to have sin natures. And we might as well come to terms with the fact that, uh, that our loved ones and us and our friends and our family, doesn't matter who it is, we all have sin natures. It's funny, I've heard people say sometimes uh, about, about kids, you know, they've said, why? Well, they'd never do that. There ain't nothing a kid won't do. <laughs> they'd burn this place to the ground. I mean, they're, and it's not because they're mean, they're just their kids. You know, I would have done it when I was a kid. Kids are kids. Somebody asked me one time, they said, you know, shouldn't I trust my teenager? I said, are you crazy? <laughs> you don't trust a teenager. You don't ever. They're sheep. They need to be shepherded. They all do. We do. And that's true of all. You say, preacher, why are you talking about kids so much? Because all we are is big kids. That's why. Every one of us. You say, well, I'm so many years old. Yeah, but your father's eternal. You're still awful young to him. We're all kids. We're all prone to this. And I know I've heard people say, well, I'd never do something like that. I'd never do something like that. Let me tell you something. You don't know what you're capable of, just like I don't know what I'm capable of. You get the right circumstances. You get the right people surrounding you. You get the right incentive. You'd be amazed what you'd do. David probably at one time would have been one of them and said, I'd never murder a man. I'd never murder a man. I'd never, I'd never commit adultery with a man's wife. But now he's not saying this, is he? Now he's saying, I'm prone to backsliding, I'm prone to error, I'm prone to wickedness. So we see the pattern for confronting sin. Finally, I'll give you these. We see the power of confessing sin. So David confesses this sin to God, and he says it does three things in his life. And I want you to notice them. Look at verse number 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Confessing our sin and repenting, forsaking it, brings cleansing in our life. Boy, aren't you thankful for the cleansing blood of Calvary? And some people say, well, you know, I, that was good when I got saved, but I, you know, I don't need it now. You need it as much now as you ever have. People say, well, you know, God saved me from all my sins, past, present, and future at Calvary. And I believe He did that. But I believe God saved you from the punishment of sin. That doesn't mean He saved you from the power of sin. You see, there's three aspects to that thing. At Calvary, God saved us from the punishment of sin. He, he, he took all the punishment on Himself. But right now, we're facing the power of sin. We live in a sin-sick world. And sin still has its hold on us. We're still, in a lot of ways, in bondage. And there's coming a day when He returns. The Bible says, Beloved, now we're the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. One day, He'll save us from the presence of sin. But while we're in this world, we're still going to have to deal with sin. And I'm thankful for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what does it say? To cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. We need cleansing in our life. I'm thankful for the cleansing of Calvary, but it also brings closeness. Look what he says there in verse number 2. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Brother McBride talked a bit about this on Senior Saints uh, on the Friday that he was here. That word imputing is a, an accounting word. It has the idea of reckoning or crediting something to someone. And, uh, you know, I, I have good relationships with most people. hope I do anyways. I mean, there's probably more people hate me than I realize, amen, but I, as long as I don't know about it, I'm all right. And, uh, you know, we, we all have people. But, you know, there ain't very many people have a good relationship with their bill collectors. Am I right? I mean, there ain't very many people. The phone rings. They, say, they see that bill collector. They say, oh, good. I was hoping they'd call. There aren't very many people that like to go to the mailbox and see that letter uh, splashed with red over the top. It says, overdue or past. There ain't very many. You know why that is? Your bill collectors. Now, don't, don't burn me at the stake now. If you knew them personally, you might find out they're actually pretty okay people. I ain't got a job to do like anybody else does. We like to think of them as a big, big bad wolf, but they're probably going to an office somewhere and sitting there for eight, eight, nine hours a day, just like what you do or what you used to do. But you see, there's a problem. There's something between you and them. There's an issue that needs to be dealt with. You ain't going to be friends with them because there's a debt to be paid. And so that debt creates a barrier or a wedge betwixt the two of you. But you know what the Word of God says? The Bible says we owe a debt. We owe a debt to God. But because of what Christ did on Calvary, He redeemed us. That means He paid the price and we're bought with the price, the Word of God says. And, and now, that, that debt that we owe, it's not imputed to us. Not in a positional way. And could I say that in the sense of fellowship, when we confess our sins to the Lord, when we sin, even as a believer, it puts a wedge between us and God. Because even though God looks at us and He sees His Son and He sees the blood, in the sense of fellowship with the Lord, there's something in between us. We can't, we can't talk to... Just like if, if you did something wrong uh, when you was growing up, your daddy, he still loved you. It didn't make you any less of his child, but that had to be dealt with. You run up and try to hug his neck. That wasn't going to fly. I remember trying to do that one time to Dad. Uh, you know, we, we think we're so smart when we're young. And, and I had done something wrong, and I can't remember what it was. It, it probably don't even matter. Probably awful. And I wouldn't even want to say it if I knew what it was. But I thought, I'm going to get him. I'm going to turn that charm on when he gets home. And he got home, and I went, I went just to run up to him. And I went to throw my arms around him. He pushed me back, said, what would you do? <laughs> he knew. He knew there was a problem. He didn't quit being my daddy. He didn't quit loving me, but he knew something had to be dealt with. You see, when he looked at me as a little boy, he imputed something to me. He accounted that I had done something wrong. There was a wedge there. But David says, now there's no wedge because I've confessed and forsook my sin. It's not accounted to me anymore. And that closeness that he longed for is there once again. And then finally, it brings consecration. He says, in in whose spirit... There is no guile found. Look what it says in verse number 2. In whose spirit there is no guile. You know what guile is? Uh, you know, that's kind of one of them funny words. You say it enough, it'll sound strange. Guile, 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 guile. You're going to do that on the way home, and you're going to think, I don't even think that's a word. You know how words are funny like that. But what guile literally means is treachery or treason, deceit. And what David is saying about the man that has confessed his sin 
is that he is now no longer hiding from God or hiding his sin from God. There is no treason or treachery in his heart anymore, but he's open and he's honest with the Lord. Can I say one of the greatest things about being right with God is being able to be honest with him? I mean, there's something about when we've got sin in our lives, we go to bless the food and we feel like we ought to be confessing something. But isn't it good to be able to pray with God and I have to spend an hour and a half confessing everything we've done wrong first? Isn't it good when we pray to the Lord that we don't have to start trying to pull out our calendar and remember when we did this wrong, that wrong, whatever it is, trying to go back in our mind and find all these things to confess them to God. We're just living open. We're living honest before God. He knows our sin. He knew about it when He bought and paid for it. So when we sin, we just say, Lord, I've done wrong. I've sinned. It was wicked. I did it on purpose. I did it out of pride. Would you forgive me of it? And He forgives us and cleanses us of it. And there's no hiding from God, no treason or treachery, deceit anymore. David says it changed who I was when I learned how to confess and forsake my sin before God. Changed the way that I lived. It's not that I didn't do anything wrong, but when I did something wrong, I dealt with it. I got it right before God. And I'm thankful that He's still faithful and just to forgive us our sin.